Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with Jerry Smith, author of the book Sailor Song, The Shanties and Ballads of the High Seas. Uh, I gotta say, just saying that title makes me excited. It's 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 fun to say. So you're originally from Dublin, is that right? That's right, Jess. I, I grew up in Dublin um, and I lived there until I was about 20. Um, and what what was the kind of musical environment of, of your of your youth? It was a mixture, really. It was a mixture of um, a, a kind of folk boom uh, in and and um, a boom in Irish traditional music, which it really partook in to some degree with the kind of international folk boom of the fifties and sixties. So there was a lot of ballad groups um, and ballad singers. Traditional music was coming into into its own then as well. It was kind of almost becoming like a popular music. Uh, there was lots of people listening to it, lots of people making it, um, um, and 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 it was a wonderfully kind of vibrant time for for, for that. And it's kind of it's maintained a very high profile uh, in, in the Irish musical landscape ever since. But also, uh, Ireland felt very strongly uh, the, the 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 kind of wave of post rock and roll popular music um in the 60s and 70s uh it t- it took to to uh to 1960s rock and 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 kind of subsequently punk and so on very strongly so there's a lot of bands around uh and uh, there's a lot of different kinds of music to listen to so it was great really and were these uh these folk songs that you're talking about they're having this kind of folk revival were these kind of uh music that that everyone would listen to, or was it kind of a specialty aficionado music? No, no, everybody would listen to it. Um, uh, obviously, the the pub culture was very strong, so a lot of um, a lot of pubs were music pubs, and there would usually be a combination of um, traditional music um, plus ballads. Um, so people would listen to those and. It was quite, there wasn't that much kind of specialization, which I've kind of discovered subsequently, where people will only listen to one genre or one family of of, of popular music. People would listen to the whole kind of gamut of of styles um, and, and genres. So uh, it, it, it was very popular and it, it sold fair amounts of music, but, but its real strength was in the community, everywhere, uh, all around the country, in pubs, usually seven nights a week, you would find people making and listening and enjoying this kind of music. So that sort of set you on your path from a pretty early age, more or less. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that, that's right. Yeah, we were listening to, obviously, music in schools, and then there was a lot of music at home. Um, uh, my, my father was a good singer. Um, my, my brothers and sisters were, were into, they were all older than me. So um, they grew up listening to Beatles and Stones and everything from the West Coast in America. They just kind of, so I, when I kind of started listening to music seriously, it was all there waiting for me. Were you listening to the sort of like British folk rock stuff of the 70s that came after that, you know, um, uh, Fairport Convention and groups like that? Not so much then. Um, I was listening to a lot of Irish folk at the, in, the, in the 70s. Um, as I said, the, the, the folk revival had really caught on. And it, it had become kind of like a popular music uh, that that it, it had a quite a following amongst uh, teenagers. Um, people would listen to it, and they got into the whole culture of who was playing with whom on what album, and uh, mm-hmm. whose version of a song was kind of more authentic than another version, and so on. Subsequently, I got into the whole the 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 British end of it. The the um, you know, um, I, I started listening to that. So subsequently, when I became a kind of scholar of of popular music, and realizing you know, what an important contribution it, it had made to the evolution of popular music in the late twentieth century, both in the UK and Ireland, but also in America to to, to an extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that happen? How did you become a scholar? I mean, you've talked about kind of growing up with with this kind of very rich musical environment. 
when did you decide, hey, I, I think my way into this is going to be not only performance, but scholarship? It's a kind of a strange story, really. Um, I mean, I, I played in bands in Dublin, um, you know, in, in my late teens. Um, we were completely contemporaneous with U2, for example. And, you know, we shared a number of uh, performance venues with them. Uh, and there was a very vibrant scene all around Dublin. Um, but when I kind of realized that I really wasn't going to crack it big, um, I kind of I moved into the more commercial end of music. And I, I became a kind of uh, pub singer, stroke folk musician, stroke cabaret singer. Um, I worked in Spain for about five years, uh, just after it was coming out of its kind of uh, post-Franco period uh, in, in the in the 80s. Um, and then when I came back to Ireland, Ireland was a mess in the 1980s. It was economically a mess. So like many other people, I had to move to the UK to make a living, carried on playing music and so on, but eventually got into academia as an English scholar, my other great love being being kind of reading and, and books and so on. So I'd worked on that for about 10 years, um, starting to make um, a, a kind of career as an English scholar, uh, as, as a researcher, writing articles and books and doing lectures and so on. And then I got to about my early 30s and I thought, you know what, I, there's not enough music in my life for somebody who used to, it used to be the be all and end all, um, you know, listening to music, finding out about music, talking about it with friends and so on. It was the major kind of, it was the major currency within which, uh, you know, myself and my friends traded the major cultural currency. So I kind of made a conscious decision at that point that I wanted to, to kind of find out about my own musical uh, history. Um, and, and I started kind of doing it quite systematically. I got involved with uh, popular music studies, which was then in a fairly kind of nascent uh, phase. It, it had roots in the 60s and 70s, but really as a, as a discipline, it only really started to kick off in the 80s. So I started just to kind of read um, that, that kind of stuff, become as um, literate in, in, with its kind of theories and its methodologies and, it, and its um, archives as, as possible. That's when I started to kind of just consume the history of post-war uh, Western popular music as, as fully as possible um, and started to think about, well, um, I really want to write about Irish popular music in the first instance just to find out how I got to be listening to the stuff that I was listening to in the late 60s and early 70s when I started to get interested in popular music. So my first book was uh, on, on this subject was called Noisy Island, um, A Short History of Irish Popular Music. And then I've gone on and done three or four other books since about about Irish music, moving up through the decades and, and getting kind of like more selective and more more specialized and more targeted in, in terms of what I was focusing on. So that's that's how it happened, really. It was a kind of conscious decision that um, I mean, I've carried on being a, a scholar of English literature, but I've I've managed to maintain this kind of parallel career um, as a scholar of um, Irish popular music. I'm sometimes referred to as the stepfather, the naughty stepfather of Irish popular music studies. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, a title I'm, I'm happy to embrace. Yeah, you should. You have a right to be proud. That's a great title. Um, and and now you teach in Liverpool, and I know Liverpool has traditionally had uh, a large Irish population. What's the place of Irish culture in that city? It's still very strong, uh, and you're dead right um, to say that Liverpool is sometimes referred to as the capital of Ireland um, <laughs> uh, because of um, its, its large Irish population. Uh, it, it doesn't um, originate in the famine years of the, uh, of the 1840s and 1850s, but it's certainly got a lot stronger then um, than, than it had been. Uh, uh, Liverpool was, was a kind of entrepot at port as a place where people went uh, to begin their longer journeys elsewhere. So, for example, uh, if you didn't sail straight from Ireland to to North America to you know any of the Canadian or um, American ports, you 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 did it via Liverpool. And then, when the famine came along um, in the eighteen forties, um, huge amounts of emigration. People came to Liverpool. Some of them perhaps expecting to go on to other places, but a lot of them never made it. Uh, a lot of them died. A lot of them um, just decided to stay and, 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 and try and kind of force that typical 
migrant uh, lifestyle and, and experience that you just kind of you 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 embrace what 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 uh, what fate has dealt you and uh, if that's living in a in a horrible little uh, basement somewhere off off Liverpool docks um, with no sanitation and no prospects, well then that's that's it. So once that that pattern was established, Liverpool became a kind of primary destination for Irish um, migrants, along with London um, and to a lesser extent some of the other cities like Birmingham, uh, Glasgow, and um, Manchester. But that strong connection between Liverpool and um, and Ireland has remained. In some senses, it's because Liverpool itself is a kind of place apart. It, it's its relationship with with the kind of rest of the UK is extremely troubled. Um, and that's partly to do with its own port history. Um, it, it's uh, having been a very kind of strong and prosperous uh, city uh, throughout much of the Industrial Revolution and and Brit- Britain's kind of imperial pomp. It suffered quite strongly um, after the Second World War. Um, and then became a kind of object of um, political oppression, really, um, under on, on on people like Thatcher and and uh, and our, our current uh, Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson is another Liverpool hater. Um, so this has only kind of underpinned its connection with with uh, Ireland and and Irishness. There's something about the Ireland, the Irish kind of uh, attitude towards life and culture that that appeals strongly to uh, to, to, to Liverpool people. And you only have to come to the city. It's one of those cities, I think, um, places like New Orleans, um, um, Marseille, places where I've been where you get a feeling that there's something going on here which they don't quite belong. There's a bit of kind of edginess um, and people feel themselves to, to have a an identity above and beyond the, the kind of mere nation state to which they are, you know, attached through no kind of particular volition of their own um so yeah it's a good good place to end up in actually as as a kind of uh irish person um i you know i felt at home here and it's very close to ireland as well it's only 25 minutes on the plane back over to, to 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 dublin um so it's good great and uh you also lead a a sea shanty choir is that right that's right, yeah. Um, How did that get started? Was it hard to find people who wanted to sign up to be in a sea shanty choir, or was it? Did you have to kind of, uh, you know, uh, hold people at the door? Um, it's it's about halfway between those those two scenarios. If I can. <laughs> um, we we've got enough to keep us busy, um, um, but but um, th- there are other choirs. There's there's kind of like glee choirs and there's popular music choirs in in the university. Uh, this is this is a kind of very specialized choir for people, and you know have to kind of introduce them to the shanty, what it is, and how it works. Um, it, we, so we've got we've got about twelve members, um, and that that's about as much as we need, uh, to be honest, uh, because of the particular way the shanty works as a form. It's kind of call and response basis. If, if you get a little any beyond that, um, it starts to get a little bit tricky. Um, if you if you read the book or have a look at the book, you know that kind of harmony and form and so on are are kind of very um, specialized um, media w- within um, the 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 shanty as a genre. So they've, it, it it sounds kind of like as if it's uh, it's it's easy to sing and it's just kind of throwaway, but actually it's it's pretty pretty specialized. Um, so. Um, everybody's got to come prepared. Everybody's got to kind of learn the the material. If we do decide to harmonize a song, um, it's got to be done quite sensitively. Um, so yeah, we we were we've been rehearsing. We, we it's about two years now. We've we've been working, and then of course, COVID came along last year, just when we we were going to record our first album, just when we had a whole uh, series of summer gigs lined up, and mm. they all kind of go got uh, put on the back burner where we're hoping um uh, after the fourth or fifth wave um sometime late next year or early in 2022 23 that we might be able to uh, pick it up again Jeez, yeah um and so what actually is a sea shanty i mean you say in the book people have been singing on boats since as long as there have been boats 
But what makes a sea shanty a, a, a particular form of uh, a sort of a seaborne song? Well, the ones that we're familiar with mostly are, are the ones that evolved in the 19th century uh, during a very kind of particular period when technology and uh, commerce combined to make the shanty a kind of viable uh, form. It's a kind of a pretty short period of about four or five, maybe six decades uh, between the, the, the end of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe and the advent of, of steam. Well, not, not really the advent of steam, the kind of triumph of steam as, as, as a kind of uh, co- commercial, a form of commercial um, transportation in the 1870s and 1880s, really. So you've got these, this kind of short period in between in which you've still got sailing ships who are doing most of the transport and most of the, the trade between um, Europe and North America. Um, so they're still relying on wind, wind power, and they're still relying on muscles, m- muscle power to a large extent. Um now, the shanties evolved um, in order to expedite the ability of relatively small crews, crews which were by and large too small for the job of work that they had been employed to do. But it enabled them to um, uh, undertake the work successfully. And the, the reason they were able to do that was they found that if they, were, if they sang, they could coordinate their efforts much more efficiently than if they were just trying to uh, undertake the task um, randomly or, or without some kind of direction. So it's almost like um, um, an orchestra. You listen to an orchestra, uh, anything from 40 to 80 or 100 players, and you think, what's this guy doing out in front with a little baton, waving it around and kind of pointing it at various people at various times? Well, he or she is is the kind of conductor. They're the ones who are enabling it all to kind of happen and successfully and in order to kind of nuance it properly. Well, the same kind of principle to a, to, to, to an extent um, uh, occurs in with, with, with the shanty. The shanty itself gives the workers um, a, a kind of uh, a, a model to work to. Uh, it, it gives them a kind of rhythm uh, or a beat that enables them to undertake the work kinetically and efficiently, um, much more than, than would otherwise be available. And also kind of singing, um, you know, at, at, at works gives the group an, an identity. Um, it enables them to sing about things that they like or interested in, usually very bawdy things uh, at, at, at this time. Um, it is a pleasure in singing that, that um, it, 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 uh, obviates boredom to a, to an extent so it's got a whole load of kind of positive features which which meant that uh, it was kind of likely in some ways that it would evolve but then it once steam comes along i should mention by the way that that uh, the shanty really only prevails on the commercial vessels the the navies uh, of um the, the nation states like uh, the, the the United States and uh, Great Britain and France and so on, they wouldn't allow shanty singing. Um, and, and that's an interesting in itself, I think, that w- why they wouldn't. They use the system of kind of uh, calls and whistles and orders in order to kind of create the same effects that the merchant vessels were using through, um, through singing. Um, but then when steam comes along and a different kind of mode of, work comes into place the shanties hang on really they hang on into the early 20th century really up until almost the 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 uh, the advent of the second world war uh, but but they kind of like losing their 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 kind of purpose to some extent um anyway that's that's my uh, my 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 understanding yeah great um one so you mentioned that these were on merchant ships, not on you know military ships. I, I think sea shanties are often in the popular association associated with uh, pirates. Is that a historically accurate connection? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. I don't think I don't. I don't know if the the pirates may have. Um, I mean, 
piracy is a hugely interesting and important uh, phenomenon of um, the modern Atlantic, well, not only Atlantic, but, but certainly in, in the Atlantic uh, development. And there's been some kind of wonderful research undertaken. Um, I, I'm not sure of the extent to which uh, singing would have uh, prevailed or, or would have taken place on the pirate ships themselves. Um, there's, there's some evidence uh, from some of the research that I've read, not that I've undertaken myself, that there was a certain amount of, of, of singing. Because if you got multinational crews together, one of the ways in which they could communicate was through the development of a kind of uh, patois or a kind of um, bastardized language made up of bits and pieces from all the kind of dominant uh, prevailing languages of the period. And one of the ways in which they could have done that was through singing. But I'm not sure that singing kind of performed the same um, function for the pirates as it would have done for the commercial vessels uh, plying the Atlantic in the years after 1815, uh, when it had a very specific focus, which was to get the work done as efficiently as possible in order to get you over the other side uh, with your cargo and to pick up your cargo and get back over, back home again as quickly as possible. And so on, and to keep the whole thing greased and running as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Um, I think we get our, our kind of notion of the, of the pirates singing from from the movies to some extent. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, from the like the Pirates of the Caribbean and so on, which which is good fun. But it, it's an interesting uh, question. One of the things that I really found interesting in the book was how international this song form was. I mean. There are lyrical references to Hong Kong, to Chile, uh, to Australia in the songs, but also musically, you mentioned that they're a kind of musical combination of African-American work songs with Irish ballads, with English folk songs, that just this kind of incredible mixture of different styles. Um, could you talk a bit about kind of the that element of these as, as, as almost a kind of soundtrack to early globalization? Yeah, I, th- I think it's one of the things I find most interesting and most appealing ab- about about the shanties is that, in some senses, they give the lie to the evolution of the nation-state and the idea of kind of national culture that, that shadows it and that, in some senses, has been responsible for so much uh, of the kind of um, problems that the, the modern world has experienced, that... The idea is that it's a very much a kind of melting pot uh, of of kind of um, races and cultures and languages uh, bashing up against each other, and and finding ways to kind of accommodate to each other, um, and and to, to to kind of get on with the job, whatever it is. The the pirate culture that we we, we were talking about a few minutes ago is in some senses a riposte to uh, that that drive towards the nation state which which in some senses characterizes the modern world uh, uh, after the 17th century um, and it's it's kind of relentless pursuit of the essence of what it is that we do here that they don't do over there how we mm-hmm. speak here and uh, you know that how they don't speak o- o- over there and so on and so on um, I, th- I think the 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 shanty is a, almost like a kind of aesthetic in 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 in, in this respect. It's kind of like uh, this sounds sounds terribly uh, pretentious, and I don't really mean it seriously. But it's kind of like postmodernism avant la lettre. It's 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 um it's it's a place where you don't go to find the 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 truth or or or, or a, a kind of coherent narrative that will take you from a beginning through a series of issues towards an end it's really just a kind of series of fragments it's it's a much more fragmented experience and it's a much more kind of macaronic um bits and pieces speckled uh, experience uh, so that's why it's it's not kind of that uh, unusual to find for example in a shanty 
to find an, an African-American, uh, an Irish, uh, perhaps a European, perhaps um, a Native American influence, all kind of like mashed into to one, um, what, one, one version. This is the other thing, of course, about the Shanties is that they resist the notion of a, of a kind of finished text, which in mm-hmm. some senses is the kind of parallel of the nation state. Because just as the nation state is kind of aiming for completion and, and kind of coherence, the analog of that is the kind of text which is kind of sufficient unto itself. And, of course, the Shanti is definitely not that. The Shanti right. only exists in the form in which it's been sung on any particular occasion. So the, the, the Shanti kind of resists the notion um, that... Um, we can kind of get to the original and, and there it is. But it's, it, that's not the case at all. When we do start looking, focusing in on particular versions, that's when we find all these different influences. Um, and it takes us back through history to kind, of, to, to kind of consider what was the occasion upon which this influence made itself felt on this particular song? How far back can I go um, in, in all reasonableness? to postulate an original version um, and how did it get to be the shape that it is in this version or that version. That's why I kind of find so attractive about it. Um, in, it's, it's a kind of very um, liberal form in, 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 in that respect. Uh, it's a very welcoming form, um, egalitarian, uh, and it resists the hegemony the authority of the text. I, I totally buy this argument, and I, I love this idea of the sea shanty as this sort of inherently subversive, uh, always revisable form. Um, but that is difficult for you because you did publish a book that includes texts and music for dozens of sea shanties. So how did you decide? I mean, obviously, you, you want to uh, to kind of preserve this sense of multiplicity, but you also want to provide versions of these songs that can be, you know, analyzed and, and sung and enjoyed. So how did you kind of negotiate that tension in putting together this book? It's a good question. And um, it's something that I address in the book itself. Um, basically, I, 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 I defocused on the, on the notion of analysis because it's not really an academic book, although it draws on a lot of academic work. Um, it's not itself a contribution to to um, the field uh, in in that respect. My focus was rather on performable versions, and this is based to some extent upon my own experience as a singer and as an arranger, as a kind of um, archivist. I, the, the versions that I included in the book really represent composite versions, which um, I've arrived at um, both lyrically and musically through the experience of, of, of being a kind of shanty singer uh, on, on, a, on a kind of regular basis. If, if myself and the shanty group um, sit down and we decide, well, we're going we're gonna to have a go at this song, well, which version are we going to have a go at? Which lyrics can we invo- should we involve? How long do we want it to be? Um, and then which kind of melody are we going to, 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 um, to focus on, given the fact that it's probably six or seven, maybe both minor and major key variations. So these are all choices that, that I make as an arranger. And it's a reflection of those choices, really, that, that, uh, that represents the, the material that I've included in the book. They are kind of uh, a snapshot in time. Uh, and I, I would expect anybody who wanted to enjoy use the book to kind of take it and say, oh, well, yeah, now I've got a melody. Now I've got a lyric, but I don't have to stick to it. I don't like that verse, or I, I do like this verse, which he's left out. I don't like this this melody version, or I don't like this variation on the third line of the chorus, so what, whatever. Um, so in that respect, it's, it's a kind of user manual rather than a contribution to knowledge. Um, and that's how I would like it to be used. I, I would like people to kind of take it away and maybe you know form their own bands or or do their own recordings or or whatever, um, so that the tradition is remade and developed in the light of what their interests and concerns and predilections are. 
One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, kind of talking about how it's meant to be used, is that it's just a beautiful book to flip through. You have all of these beautiful archival images, and you also have original images that were created for this book um, by an artist uh, whose name I have written down, uh, Johnny Hanna. Yeah, Um, just gorgeous, very cool, almost kind of tattoo-like illustrations. Could you talk about that process of, of collaboration, uh, you know, kind of how, how, how those images came about and, and how you decided what archival images you wanted to present alongside the text of the book? Well, um, it's very much a um, uh, collaborative effort in that respect that I was contacted by the British Library um, in London who have their own publishing wing and publish about 50 books a year based on their obviously very large holdings and you know they've got basically the whole of human knowledge um, is, is 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 there um they have access to uh, western knowledge by and large uh, but but it's all there so they contacted me and said they had this huge archive of um I- images and they wanted to try and um start producing a book um or perhaps a series of books based on on that material so really, they left it to me to, to write the text. So I chose the songs. I wrote the introduction. I wrote all the connecting parts, the, the 10 kind of inter-chapters, uh, looking at different um, aspects of, of the tradition. Once that was completed, uh, late, late, late in that process, I sent the material to them, at which point they started working on uh, sourcing the the photographic images from the 19th and early 20th century. Johnny Hanna had already been recruited at this stage. He'd been identified as an artist whose style would be very sympathetic to to, to the text, as envisaged by the general publishers uh, at, at the British Library, uh, because he'd done a whole series of, of, of works. Um, so then they sent on the material to him. He obviously read the material quite closely and he started working on uh, producing images that spoke to um, the, 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 the words that I had already written and the lyrics that I'd already included in, 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 the, in the 40 Ashantis and the 10 ballads. So really, I, I, I didn't see anything of the, the photographs or, or the paintings until quite late in the process. Uh, and it was left to a kind of design editor to find the most sympathetic and effective way of bringing the three different uh, parts of the book together. Um, then I, I had a look at the, the, the late uh, galley proofs and made some suggestions as to text, uh, font, and, and layout, and so on. But by that stage, it was all kind of, um, it, it, was, it was mostly done. And I think like a lot of people, I was absolutely charmed by, by the paintings and the photographs. I think they sit together with the text really, really well. And, and as you mentioned, it's just a pleasure. I hope people will read it cover to cover, but it's also a, play, a book in which you can dip quite, quite kind of um, effectively and pleasurably and just read one or two of the entries and, and um, look at the images. I describe it to, to, to my, my wife and my children as a happy book. It's the kind of book I would have liked to have myself as a child because it, w- it would have been a place where I could go that would set me dreaming of uh, places around the world and, and perhaps feed a kind of nascent love of music. Yeah, absolutely. I could see this being a very interesting book to sort of a, a certain type of eight-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I should um, by the way, the British Library, um, uh, they're currently considering a, a, an, another volume Um this will be a, a couple of years' time, three or four years' time, but and a, a kind of similar style, but one ostensibly or initially um, um, based around the notion of Sailor Town. Sailor Town mm. is what I write about in, in this current book, Sailor Song, uh, a little bit. It's about those areas of the port cities which grew up and developed to service the, uh, the, the sailor industry uh, that was associated with them. So usually the kind of fairly racy areas close to the to 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 the to the waterfront it, um and you know you can think of san francisco and boston and uh, uh new york uh, um as well as around the world 
Liverpool and Sydney and Singapore and all those other places. So the British Library are currently considering um, um, a, a book uh, on, on that subject, uh, in which case if they do, it'll probably be the same kind of idea, text, photograph and, and um, original images. Cool. Yeah, when you mention Sailor Towns, I think of the New Brunswick of uh, Moby Dick, <laughs> first yeah. of all. Um, you know, this sort of mixture of all of these people from all around the world. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That Another kind of uh, dangerous, edgy uh, space in, in which, uh, it's, well, it is very dangerous, literally, but also it's a place that kind of resists the, 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 the strong authoritarian policing instincts of the hinterland. You know, the further away you get from the port, the more the authorities are able to, to exercise control. So that's why they're, they're so interesting in, in, in some respects. So I'd love to talk about these songs as sort of historical evidence. What kind of uh, picture of life at sea emerges when you read, you know, a, a few dozen of these song texts back to back? I think it was hard. I think it was hard in a way that we can probably um, not fully um, appreciate. Um, I, I mean, I should mention I'm, I'm not, not a good sailor at all. That's, you know, when, I, when, I was, <laughs> when I was researching the book, when before, when I, you know, I've done a couple of um, shanty albums before and, um, and so on, and I do have sailor friends uh, from around the area. And they'd say, oh, come out, come out, come out to see and we'll show you what it's really like. You need to kind of appreciate it and experience it in order to understand it. And I have tried a few times, but not, it's not for me. <laughs> so um, I, I, I can only imagine, and I've read quite a few um, books of experiences uh, at, at sea. The sailors were pretty far down the pecking order. Um, there was a lot of bullying, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, exploitation, uh, both on, on, on ship and on shore. The, the practice of crimping, which, which um, I write about in the book, uh, which was basically a kind of a system to, to kind of cheat the sailors out, out, of, out, of, um, out, out of their money and get them back to sea as quickly as possible. Um, it, it was just hard um, it was, it was, and it was very difficult, very taxing uh, physically um, and mentally one, one can also Im imagine. Um, and there's a strong kind of culture of it in Liverpool um, because it remained an important port up until the 60s and, and 70s. So there was still a strong sailor contingent uh, then. And, and the stories that they tell is of it being a very difficult um, and a hard life. Kind of romantic, I suppose, in some respects. But I think a lot of that romance comes from people like me, from kind of like landlubbers who, who mm. kind of like, you know, love the the romance of the sea and loved their Melville and their Conrad and their, you know, Captain Marriott and all that kind of thing. And, uh, love the notion of the, the kind of give me that horizon moment. Um, uh, but, but that's one side of the coin. Um, and it is attractive, but, but it should, it should never kind of take away from that. This was a kind of brutal period in labor history. Um, mm -hmm. Um, and a typical kind of phase in the development of kind of capitalism in that respect. And, and, and like, you know, all kind of capitalist uh, enterprises, its purpose was to maximize profit. Um, and if that came at the expense of the agents who kind of expedited that profit, but then, then so be it. So it was difficult uh, and hard. Um, and and we, sh we should never forget that, even as we're kind of enjoying the accidental products of that period, which were the shanties themselves. There's also a certain amount of uh, sort of bodiness in these songs, uh, maybe a surprising amount for a contemporary reader, uh, thinking about how we normally think of the 19th century as this very staid, conservative uh, period. So could you talk a bit about kind of the, I don't know, the, the, the more unseemly aspects of life that emerge in these shanties? Well... <laughs> I mean, we touched on this earlier on, uh, and <clears throat> the, one of the things that we sh we need to to admit and and to kind of face up to is that these shanties are are, are not the shanties that would have been sung on on board ships 
during the, the kind of heyday of the shanty. Because when they began to be collected by late Victorian um, archivists and folklorists, a lot of the time the material was, was, was too racy, was too difficult for, for the, the, the collectors to um, countenance. So either the, the shanty singers themselves um, um, changed the lyrics when they were giving them to the collectors or the collectors changed the lyrics that were given to them by the, by the singers. So a lot of the material that's come down to us is a very kind of watered down version of what would have been sung at sea. And what would have been sung at sea is what would have been sung by, you know, any collection of sequestered young and middle-aged males. They sang a lot about bodily functions. They sang a lot about sex. Um, they sang a lot about um, stuff that was that was that was not uh, countenanced in polite company, shall shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of these have 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 survived. Um, they've survived in one form or another. They've survived in the army, or in sports teams, or in 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 kind of uh, among students or, or or whatever. But the material um, that I, I've got, even even when I did try to kind of, and I'm, I'm talk about this in the book to a certain extent, when I did try to introduce some of the racier elements, the the British Library. Um, with whom I should, I should say I've, I've been kind of uh, working throughout lockdown, throughout kind of uh, COVID-19. Um, we, we never actually got a chance to meet. We only kind of Zoom. And, and they would do the kind of equivalent of pursing their lips and going, oh, I don't know if we can get that in, actually. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, but but I don't. So I'm kind of all the time having to, to kind of say, um, and they did, they did include a... Uh, an apology um, at the beginning of the book um, to the effect that um, uh, whilst it would be impossible and misleading to present a history of sailor song without some reference to this language, the examples in this volume have been limited and each fully contextualized. The archaic and unacceptable views expressed in a small number of the song lyrics do not represent the opinions of the British Library or those of the author. <laughs> there's obviously there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexism, um, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of categorically repugnant to us today, and mm-hmm. right. So, um, but at the same time, it's not an accurate reflection of what these people would have been done doing at this time. So the problem for an editor is to try to reclaim a kind of positive relationship with the material while all the time signalling that they they. Um, evinced attitudes and articulated opinions that are, are, are not the same as ours today. I think most people would kind of accept that. They would, they would sure. understand that, that people, um, you know, even perhaps well-meaning people in the past uh, use terminology and language and so on that, that is just not, not acceptable to us today for reasons that we're all familiar with and that, that are absolutely still developing. Right. I, I think it's sort of funny that they felt the need to like explain, oh, that these these 19th century lyrics that were sung on board sailing ships don't reflect the opinions of an editor at the British Museum in 2020. Like that is, uh, yeah, I yeah. think most people understand that the past was a different country. Um, I, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I can't. There are other examples which um, I, I can't find uh, at the moment, but, but um, certainly some of the language... It always comes in with inverted commas, um, and um, hopefully people will understand that the book itself is a kind of safe space that we go to observe the culture of the past rather than to kind of endorse it or, or try to re- reclaim it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was personally interesting to me, um, you know, as someone whose family descended from Irish immigrants in the mid 19th century is how much America shows up in these songs and America specifically as a destination for immigration. Um, could you talk a bit about how America is depicted in a lot of these sea shanties? Well, America, uh, it has its own very strong shanty tradition. Obviously all the songs and all the, all the shanties, all the ballads usually have American versions in which you replace a kind of a place name or, or whatever, or a direction. 
and all of a sudden you go from having a an, an English shanty to an American shanty. But obviously, given the fact that trade uh, both in goods and people between um, uh, Britain um, and America was was the kind of context within which the form itself evolved, it's um, not surprising that America looms incredibly large because the ships are heading for specific uh, destinations. Um, the songs themselves are making their way into the ports, into the hinterland uh, um, of, of the United States. They're getting adopted, they're getting transformed, they're getting sent back a lot of the time. Um, so um, the, the, the depiction of America, it, it, it runs between a continuum between being very bad and very good, as, as you would expect. And sometimes it's a place of freedom and um, liberation from the hardships of the old world. Sometimes it's a place of opportunity. Um, it's a place where you can become rich. Um, it's a place um, uh, that that you can give full full vent to to your to, you know to express yourself. Uh, on, sometimes it's a place where you go to die, which is very difficult. Um, it's it's a place where you go to to um, experience what you've already experienced at home, except in a foreign place. So it's it's typical in that in that respect of migrant uh, um, culture that um, it's it's a place of opportunity but also it's a place of hardship it's it's a place uh, of of freedom and liberation but also it's a place um that's dangerous a place of incarceration and uh, and so on um as a, as a kind of imaginary location it's a major contribution to the idea of america that that kind of subsists down to the present day in britain and and in europe uh, you know most people uh, will not during the course of their life make it to america um from 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 britain or, or ireland so they depend on images they depend on culture they depend on on music um on books increasingly on television and and movies for their sense of, of what that place is and what what it represents and the shanties themselves represent a kind of contribution to that um I was just looking before I was talking to you. I was going through the songs um, and, and just noting how often America crops up um, in, in, in them all. Um, America and Canada and North America. And then you get that whole kind of Gulf um, experience as well, heading down towards the more romantic and exotic locations of South America. Um, finally, I, I want to ask you a bit about the current state of the the sea shanty uh, i was surprised to learn in your book that there's quite an active contemporary sea shanty scene as it were could you give us a taste of kind of what that world is like it's it's great um to be honest um there's um a number of um folk festivals th throughout britain and ireland uh throughout the year some of them are very big like the cambridge and sidmouth and shrewsbury some of them are a lot smaller. Some of them are just kind of, you know, very small, associated with one particular pub or one particular uh, village. So um, there's lots of opportunities uh, for, for folk music um, um, throughout the year. And uh, the shanty represents a very strong component of, of that, that culture. If you went to any of the, the large festivals, you would find a lot of shanty groups singing a lot of material um, in lots and lots of different ways. Um, so the shanty, some people call themselves shanty group. And again, kind of going back to our earlier um, comments, some of them are quite fastidious about how they, they think the shanty should be sung and what it actually is. There's a lot of creativity and a lot of um, liberalism which goes into kind of interpreting what the shanty is. So... Um, some people will do it with instruments. Some people will do it with harmony. Some people will, will kind of do it as an actual song. But then there are other groups which try to kind of retain what they consider to be the a, a version which is closer to the original, more authentic version in some respects. Uh, and there are actual shanty festivals themselves. There's um, or shanty sea music festivals. 
there's one in Falmouth in in um, in Cornwall uh, every year, uh, at which a Sailor Song was supposed to be launched last year, and which um, we're hoping against hope that it may be launched this year. Uh, there's a Shanty Festival in Ellesmere Port, very close to Liverpool, um, uh, every couple of years. Um, and it, they're, they're really good fun because um, you, you, you see a, a, a lots of different people from around the world. I, I should mention also the Shanty Sea Music Festival, Sea Music Culture, is very strong throughout Europe. Uh, France and Germany have very strong um, sea music traditions, uh, being uh, strong maritime nations. Um, not so much Italy, interestingly, hmm. uh, over around the Baltic as well, um, to places like Poland and uh uh, the Baltic states into Scandinavia, they all have very strong um, sea music and sea song traditions. So it's it's a very vibrant culture. Um, and you can actually fetch up and in, a, in a strange place where they speak perhaps a different language. But if you sing a particular song, they will know it. They will know the melody and they will know the, where to join in and so on and so on. So it's, in that respect, it's, it's a lot of fun. So sea shanties are still bringing together people from across these, you know, national and cultural divides. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and nowhere more so than in America, I think. Um, uh, my experience is, is, is limited, but my impression is that down that, um, especially down the eastern seaboard, um, the maritime music um, culture remains uh, very strong, very, very effective um, and affective um, and, and that people are still <coughs> happy to get together um, to, to, to kind of sing these songs. And I think they must be responding to something kind of uh, almost primordial in, in the music itself, that it speaks to a kind, of, a kind of experience and a kind of shared experience, which, you know, no matter um, how much we evolve, um, will will remain kind of valid and remain valuable for us. Because singing the shanties kind of brings us together in a way that not quite any other form of music does. And as long as people kind of respond to that, then I think the shanties will, will continue uh, to be sung and, and enjoyed and valued by people from around the world. Well, Jerry Smith, I've already taken up so much of your time, but thank you so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful book, Sailor Song. You're very welcome. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's not it's nice to talk to um, to anybody else during lockdown, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, great. And hearing the the, uh, the car horns coming in from Brooklyn was, was fun. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> we also have a helicopter. I'm not sure if you can hear that. No, no, I didn't, didn't catch that quite soon. Okay, that's good. <laughs> All right, take care. Okay, Andy, thanks very much. Uh, great to talk to you.